Let's Talk PR and More. Public relations, media, publicity, integrated communications, marketing, digital, reputation management, and more. Let's Talk PR and More with award-winning PR strategist, Sherry Goldman. Hi, I'm Sherry Goldman, president of Goldman Communications Group, and welcome to Let's Talk PR and More. Today's guest is Dr. Brooke Grinlinger. Dr. Brooke Grinlinger is the chief scientific officer of the New York Academy of Sciences. In this role, she leads strategic development and oversight of the Academy's international portfolio of scientific conferences and related multimedia publications across a broad spectrum of life sciences, physical sciences, chemistry, sustainability, computer science, and engineering. She also stewards the Blatvinick Awards for Young Scientists and the Innovators in Science Awards programs, both supporting young scientists. In 2021, Crane's New York business named Dr. Brooke Grenlinger as the most notable in nonprofits and philanthropy for her work to provide educational programs that serve the scientific community and general public as a critical clearinghouse of accurate, verified data and analysis about the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm so honored to have Dr. Brooke Ringlinger here as my guest today. So welcome. Thanks so much, Sherry. It's my honor to be on your show. It's great. And I love that we're going to talk science communications. I thought I'd get started with, it seems to me that science is becoming more politicized. Um, Certainly, we've seen that during the COVID debate. We've also seen it around the debate around key environmental issues. And I know you recently said every year we see the value of science come under attack by sources, which to me is so very sad. So why has science become so controversial and under attack? It's a great question. And it, and it is unfortunate. And I think controversy and attacks on science, they can differ in frequency, scope and impact, but they most often arise when scientific findings conflict with core human values or religious beliefs, political agendas or business interests. And especially when emerging science raises difficult ethical or political questions that the science itself cannot necessarily answer. Wow. So it, is it a communications issue or is it really that, you know, I teach public relations. So we talk about psychographics of the target audiences and obviously people hear things that are cognitive dissonance, hear things that are consistent with what they believe in and they dismiss messages that are not consistent with things they already believe in. So is it a communications issue or is it a people and an emotion issue? I think there's a few drivers at work uh, underlying the, the controversy. First and foremost, there can often just be a, a lack of understanding from different audiences. Complex scientific concepts can be really difficult to understand, even for scientists in other <laughs> fields of research. And that can very easily lead to misconceptions and even skepticism on the part of the public all the way through to some of our policymakers. And then those misconceptions can often result in the spread of misinformation okay. or disinformation. And that leads to confusion and a level of mis trust about certain scientific findings and then not to point any fingers but sometimes the media sector itself can play a role in the politicization of science 
Sometimes we may see news outlets selectively report on research that supports the political position of that particular outlet or their unique audience segment. And then I think there's still this pervasive public perception that scientific research is conducted by this very elite group of experts, that it's not accessible to the general public, and that can also lead to distrust. And then we have had a little bit of a reproducibility crisis in recent years. There's been concerns about can we reproduce certain scientific findings, and that leads to questions about how reliable is some scientific research. And there's incredible pressure on scientists today to publish new research as a proxy for their career success. And that, sadly, has driven some bad actors to maybe falsify data, and that can lead to retractions of prior claims in, in the scientific literature. But overall, I think it's really important to note that while science can be controversial and come under attack, the vast majority of scientific research is absolutely conducted with integrity. I would hope so. I mean, that's certainly what I believe. So the question is, how do we get people to believe that? How do we get people to understand that? It goes back to, is it a communications issue? Is it a public relations issue? Is it that Um, people are so, the media is so fragmented that everybody gets information in their own little bubble these days or their own little, you know, echo chamber. We're not listening to each other. I think all of these things play, play <laughs> We're not going to fix the, the world today, I know, but... Um. <laughs> well, if you think about... I think you mentioned, is it, a, is it an issue of just being able to understand science or how you communicate the validity of science or this echo chamber concept? Well, if we just talk about, you know, how could we maybe make science more understandable Perfect. for everybody? How, how PR people could, could do things better or differently. I, I think actually a critically important part of the equation of how PR people can help make science more understandable is the degree of their own understanding of the science. Before you even begin to craft a pitch or a story, it's so important to have a good foundational understanding of the scientific research that you're reporting on so that you can really accurately convey the results and explain the significance of the work. But for your listeners, I imagine they're probably thinking, but how do I develop and maintain this foundational understanding in different areas of science if you don't necessarily have advanced science training? Absolutely, because as somebody who's been in PR forever and I've done a little bit of things that touch on science, I mean, I learn from my clients. So how do PR people learn this? Because we need to do a better job, clearly. Mm-hmm. I think there's a couple of tactics I can suggest. Sure. First, look for opportunities to invest in your own ongoing learning. Okay. Think about what professional development opportunities might be offered by your employer. Could you attend webinars on certain scientific topics? Maybe take an online course that's intended for uh, lay audiences or very general audiences that can serve as a basic primer about foundational scientific areas that you might be reporting on. Um, Attending scientific conferences is a great way to keep your finger on the pulse of what new science is developing in different fields and who the the real experts are at the forefront of new discoveries are. 
And then just reading industry publications, okay. and that could be scientific journals, but also the trade magazines. I understand reading science and nature might be a little <laughs> difficult for people without technical scientific training, but publications like Scientific American, uh, New Scientist, National Geographic do a really beautiful job of taking complex scientific information and telling a story and you don't necessarily need to have deep technical expertise to appreciate and understand that. So just a few tips I think about how PR folks can bolster their own understanding of the science and then I think once they've got a really good grasp on the scientific fundamentals I've got four tips sure. for PR professionals that could help make science more accessible for all audiences. First, simplify the language. In your reporting, try and use simple but vivid language that breaks down complex scientific concepts into everyday terms. That's probably good no matter what we promote. Public. Yeah, <laughs> that's the best tip, exactly. And, you know, aim for the level of a fifth grader. Anyone with kids, you can try out your explanation with them or a mum and dad. They're great audiences to sort of see if they can understand the message that you're, you're trying to convey. And I'd say here, PR people, you should keep in mind that there's a real difference between accuracy and precision, your average consumer, they don't need the same level of detail or precision that a fellow scientist might need or a journal editor that's responsible for assessing and vetting new science before it gets published. So the trick for PR folks is to hit that level of precision that's meaningful to the public, but without sacrificing accuracy. Finding that sweet spot, that sounds like exactly. the challenge, but the key. And then second, using visual aids wherever you can. Things like infographics, diagrams, videos can be more engaging and really help to explain scientific conference, uh, concepts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a reason why that phrase, a picture paints a thousand words, still holds really true today. I just taught that in my class yesterday for PR writing. We went through photos and that was literally the slide. A picture's worth a thousand words and how to use it for graphics. Perfect. And then third, make it relatable. You have to try and relate scientific concepts to real life situations or problems that people can easily identify and gives them the necessary context for them to understand what's the bigger picture here? Why is this science important? And often using analogies or metaphors can be really great tools for this. It can help bridge the gap between what's unfamiliar and familiar for a general audience. And that can often also bridge the gap between different levels of understanding or background knowledge of your audience. Okay. So to give an example, maybe to sort of add some color and context here. Love that. You know, coming out of the COVID pandemic, I could describe in words or even show you an image of the very complex crystal structure of the specific molecule in our immune system that binds to virus particles during infection. Or I could describe or sketch for you that same molecule 
two open halves of a hot dog bun where the viral particle is the sausage that gets Ah. stuck in the groove between the two halves of the bun. Now, chances are most people could easily relate to the hot dog description. Absolutely. And I never heard that one before, too. And then I think, uh, lastly, last tip I'll share is just PR folks to collaborate with scientists. Draw out their input on how to best communicate their science effectively. If you can communicate to your scientists who your consumer is, their likely level of knowledge and education, and then what format the consumer is going to be receiving that information. You know, is this a 10-second soundbite? Is it a 30-minute segment on television? Most scientists can probably tweak their word choice or visuals effectively. And as I said, any scientist who's got a mom or a dad or kids likely has a really great analogy up their sleeve (laughs) to explain their science in the simplest of terms. And then if you're not sure if you've got something right when you're crafting your scientific story or during the interview, go back to them, ask them, did I get it right? Have them proof it to make sure that you really nail what you're trying to communicate to the audience. Those are fabulous, fabulous tips, and they they make so much sense, and they would help us certainly communicate, you know, what science is. And then I know one of our challenges, we have to communicate that to the media, who's then going to say, yes, I want to do the story and obviously interview the scientist or talk about it. So these are the same tips I would assume that we can bring to the media when we're pitching them or working with them or have tell them to use the same tips when they tell the story. Absolutely. And I think there, when you, when a PR person is trying to pitch a story to someone in the media, the media individual is probably looking for, why is this important? Why is this worth me doing a story on this and using my airtime or my column inches? Absolutely. So, and some, I will just interrupt for a second, some are not as scientifically well-versed as others, depending upon if we're pitching the Scientific American or you're pitching a local reporter to talk about a study or findings that came out, but they're a general assignment reporter. And the science is not their strong suit. It's true. And it's a very fast-moving, noisy media landscape today. Absolutely. The news cycle drives much of what the interest is in the next 30 minutes of reporting or the next three hours of reporting. So sometimes I know it can be difficult for PR folks to even penetrate the news cycle and capture the attention of those producers who are looking for the story angles. But here, here I think, you know, Public relations and media professionals really have an opportunity to help show science on the attack rather than under attack. So a a couple of strategies in trying to communicate the importance of science and get them to do that story. First, just highlight the scientific advancements. This is a new treatment for a disease it's an innovative technology, or this discovery somehow advances our understanding of the world. I just think, imagine if the same word count and column inches that we currently devote to celebrity breakups (laughs) were instead devoted to scientific achievement. We'd be a much better world. (laughs) And then in your reporting, if you can emphasize the real world impact give tangible examples and context for how science benefits society and improves people's lives, 
it's really too easy for us all just to take for granted some of the most important scientific innovations that we use in our lives every day. And then third, there's so many opportunities to highlight the role of science in decision-making, in policy-making. You can emphasize the importance of scientific research in shaping our world, shaping our future, because scientific data has shaped really key policy decisions that affect all of us. Everything from the approval to every medicine that you take, to the regulation of our air and water quality, to the protection of endangered species, and even setting fuel efficiency standards for the cars that we drive. And then I think telling compelling stories is such a critical lever here. Science can be really abstract and difficult to understand. Even I as a scientist can struggle to, to comprehend abstract scientific concepts sometimes in scientific disciplines well outside of my own area of training. But if you can tell a compelling story that helps connect readers to the research on a personal level, I think that's where the story can really land. So, for example, instead of just describing the complicated engineering details of, let's say, a robotic exosuit. <laughs> it's going to be much more compelling if you tell the story of Ted, the stroke victim, who can walk better and maintain his balance better with the help of this cool wearable device. Absolutely. That can better connect with the audience because they can feel the difference it'll make personally to Ted through this new technology. No, that makes so much sense. And storytelling and relating to the audience is key, which brings us to, you know, what are the big challenges in communicating information to the public? And I just want to say that last night while I was reading an industry trade magazine, O'Dwyer's Public Magazine, um, one of the authors said we must do a better job. It happened to be something about science communications, believe it or not. Timing is everything. And mm -hmm. one of the authors said we must do a better job of blending science with emotion when communicating scientific information that we want people to care about. And I think you hit that, which is how to make it relatable to the person that's listening. It may be emotion. It may be, it has to be relevant. People aren't going to care about what's not relevant to them. So I think Absolutely. the challenge is to, you know, find something that's the sweet spot that matters to them. Should Absolutely. that come from PR? Should that come from the scientists? Is that something that we can do a back and forth on to say, listen, this is a great breakthrough or a great environmental thing. I've done a lot of environmental communications. This is great for the environment, but, but it's just going to seem unachievable or unattainable or too esoteric. So how can we make that real for the person who's listening so that we can tell that story and they understand how important that is? I think it's a collaboration okay. between the, the scientists and the communications professionals. If your scientist can, during the interview, bring their passion, their emotion to the story, to their presence in the story, it really, really resonates with an audience that here's someone who's excited, passionate about changing people's lives, and often they, many scientists can bring a personal story to their research 
for example, you know, a cancer researcher might be in that field because they lost a parent or a sibling to cancer earlier in their life. Exploring some of these more personal themes, maybe before the interview that you could try and pull out during the conversation mm -hmm. can often add that context and personalized color to the story. And that really nicely complements the more technical things that your scientist might be saying. And then on the communication side, anywhere that you can think about how is this going to impact my listener? Is there a use case for this new scientific discovery that they may feel the personal impact of maybe today, maybe a year from today, maybe 10 years from today? If you can give them a real tangible example of how in their everyday life this scientific innovation is going to cross their path, then I think they have a greater personal connection to it and appreciation for how science is important to their everyday life. You just mentioned that time frame of a year. Do you find that people care more about something that they think is going to happen in the short term as versus we're working on this, but 10 years, that's going to make a difference? I, I think part of the reason, in my opinion, that people don't want to hear about climate change is they're like, well, I don't care what happens 50 years now from now. I can't fi imagine, you know, the world will be too hot 50 years from now. They're too far in advance for me to think, although they should, believe me, they should deal with it immediately. So do you think it has to be a short time frame for people to understand the science science communications or care about it i'm trying to think and i don't mean to put you on the spot like that but i heard that and i was like hmm yeah if i'm going to be a little cynical um yes if we see a a, a new report about a new potential medicine to treat disease People who could be directly and positively impacted by that new development, they immediately want to know, where can I get it? Where can I get that from my friend, my family member who could benefit from that discovery immediately? So there is absolutely a, um, a sense of urgency for examples like that. And we have no but, attention spans. People, people generally want, and we are the instant gratification generation. So. It's very, very true. <laughs> but I think there's an opportunity here for how we frame the presentation of new scientific research to the general public. And if we can better convey this really important nuance that the impact payoff of scientific discoveries made today may not be known for weeks, months, years, or even decades to come. Mm -hmm. That helps set people's expectation and I think understand better how science is conducted and how they may ultimately benefit from science. So for example, the concept of an mRNA vaccine, which was the type of vaccine created to successfully protect against COVID, right. That was developed first in the early 1990s. And without that very early research that didn't result in a vaccine, you know, that month, that day, that year, but without that very early research that advanced our fundamental understanding of this technology, we would not have been able to protect billions of people from dying of COVID in the last three years. So setting that expectation that the investment in science and scientific discovery is more long game than short-term win 
I would hope would better reframe those expectations from the public and that desire for instant gratification. No, that makes so much sense. And that brings me to my next question. How do we make science more accessible? Should we be talking about things in science during the process? Because I agree. I felt totally safe getting my mRNA vaccine. I knew it was, I don't want to say old technology, but it wasn't hocus pocus. It, it was something that had been worked on for years and years and years and years. And mm-hmm. thank God, because then when COVID came, they were able to adapt that technology to create this vaccine. So should we be talking and in, in, in promoting and, and making more accessible the process of science? Absolutely. And I'd say the small steps along the way that support each scientific discovery, those small steps may not in and of themselves each be splashy front page New York Times headlines. But if they can be reported over the course of science being conducted, I think it really throws open the door and sheds light on the scientific process and how one experiment does not necessarily guarantee 100% certainty about any question that we're trying to answer through science, but that science is this constantly evolving, often self-correcting process and that as new information is learned, new tools developed to help us observe and measure things in our world, we can refine our ideas and revise our theories. And that can change sometimes um, what, what we can support in terms of scientific discovery. I think if if your average person understood that more lengthy process of question, discovery, refine, review, revise, they might have a greater appreciation for discoveries along the way that might ultimately lead to, hey, we have a vaccine for COVID. Right, and I think that would build more trust because one of the key things we have to do is build trust in science. So or rebuild trusted science because it used to be there. And now it seems that people are a little skeptical these days, which is sad. They are. And that comes a little bit to that sort of point of communicating the validity of scientific findings. Um, And I think first and foremost, for, for PR people in the media, if you're communicating about the validity of scientific findings, first and foremost, you have to use trusted sources. Consult original research articles in peer-reviewed journals, consult academic experts and reputable scientific organizations, like the New York Academy of Sciences. Absolutely. (laughs) We love the New York Academy of Sciences. (laughs) And I think if your listeners are maybe struggling with, how how do I identify a reputable expert? If you're a PR professional or someone in the media, how do you know who's reputable? There are a number of organizations that can help support that. Uh, one I'll mention is the nonprofit organization Skyline, which is based at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Okay. And they actually offer a free service for journalists who are looking to connect with rigorously vetted scientists who also possess solid communication skills. 
they've received some training so you know you can put them on television or radio or a phone call and they will be able to communicate effectively about a certain scientific subject. So there are some go-to places out there where you can make sure you are sourcing scientific information from trusted and well-vetted individuals. And then I have to comment on sensationalism in, <laughs> in science reporting. We all know that sexy, splashy headlines yes. can drive views, but they can really undermine the validity of the work. They can lead to misunderstandings, and that can lead to mistrust by the public. And can I share a fun Abs anecdote with you? Absolutely. Please do. So some years ago, I was the science editor for a medical research journal, and we published a study in mice showing that administration of the active ingredient in marijuana either prevented or caused early attachment of embryos in the uterus of these mice. And that attachment process is known as implantation and is considered the first stage of pregnancy. Right. So we've exposed these mice to the active ingredient in marijuana and looking for what's the effect on this first stage of pregnancy. Now, rather than responsibly reporting that marijuana could lead to ectopic pregnancy or it could impair fertility, and most importantly, if this study were conducted and found to also show the same results in humans, <laughs> one popular science magazine, who I won't name, instead chose to paint marijuana as an effective method of birth control. What? So they reported the heading that using cannabis around the time of sex can prevent pregnancy. Oh, how irresponsible. Wholly irresponsible <sighs> science reporting, but I bet it really boosted their web traffic for um, that particular publication. Clickbait for sure, absolutely. Hopefully it didn't result in too many babies nine months later. But it was the clear root of scientific misinformation that was, you know, sacrificed just to get a sexy headline. So it's really important to avoid sensationalism in reporting of new scientific discoveries. When something like and that happens, do you have to go immediately go out and try and say this is not accurate? I mean, that, does that put you in the crisis communications mode of having to clarify what somebody irresponsibly did? Absolutely. I think reporting where you see misinformation, disinformation around science is so important. And, and any consumer or user of that interface or platform can do that. At the time, um, we absolutely contacted that particular publication and asked for a correction. And I, I wrote a, a very passionate editorial about the responsibility that uh, journalists and reporters have in in reporting scientific information accurately and not leading to this type of misconception or misinformation to their audience, even if it's a splashy headline that they know is going to, to draw readers to their publication. Especially because in the case of science, it could be life or death. I mean, this is not celebrity PR. So this this could this is a health issue. This could really be somebody's life or death. It is true. And then lastly, if I can just mention sure. around validity of science and trust in the information, 
the field has to provide balanced reporting. So there can be potential limitations or caveats associated with new scientific research. Not every experiment can answer every possible research question or prove a particular therapy, uh, a theory with complete certainty. My recommendation is always for journalists and PR people to acknowledge those limitations where they exist okay. rather than skip over them or try and bury them in the reporting. And scientists should be encouraged to do so as well. Often when you read new scientific information, a new scientific article from the scientists themselves will provide a wrap-up about, you know, what did we find, why is this important, and what does this mean for the future? And often that closing discussion in scientific research articles will also capture limitations, caveats, where maybe not all the stars align under their particular scientific theory. And I think that's important to make sure we capture that when broadly communicating science to the general public as well. Has social media changed how people learn about science or accept oh. science? <laughs> we could do a whole oh, show gosh, on that, yes. Brooke, couldn't we? Um. <laughs> Absolutely. Gosh, I mean, gone are the days when people got much of their information from just a few radio or TV stations or magazines or newspapers. So the importance and accessibility of social media has significantly changed the landscape of science communication. Firstly, there's just the increased accessibility of science information. Platforms like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, science blogs, YouTube, they've made it so much easier for scientists to share their research directly and reach much wider audiences. That's and the positive. That. That's good. That's the positive. Yeah and, yeah. and do that much more swiftly than perhaps traditional media outlets. And there can be this really quick dialogue now between the scientists and the public they can ask questions in real time on these platforms. So it's increasing engagement, increasing accessibility, and there's a, a democratization of information, I guess. It's broken down those traditional barriers to accessing scientific information. You don't necessarily need to pay for a subscription to a print or a digital scientific journal or magazine or newspaper to get this information today. And I think that, in a way, is helping increase the scientific literacy of the general public. Okay. And then, gosh, creativity. I mean, a few swipes through Instagram or TikTok, you can find anything from a science experiment you could safely do in your kitchen at home with your kids or even someone performing an interpretive dance of their PhD research. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it can be so much fun. Science can be made so much fun through some of these channels, and it beats reading a dry scientific textbook any day. So is that going to encourage the next generation of people to go into science or science communications because it is approachable and it does look more fun and it doesn't look so cut and dry? It looks approachable and fun. That is absolutely my hope, and I think we're already seeing that. You are. You want to reach, you want to reach today, you want to reach kids to get them interested in science, keep them engaged in science, and then bring them along studying science through high school, through college, and into careers in science. But you have to get them early and keep them engaged early, 
And if you've ever tried to pull an iPad or a phone out of a child's hand who's on one of these uh, platforms watching something fun, it's really difficult. So I, I absolutely think this is a tool that's going to help us engage more people um, and, and educate more people in science. This is fabulous. Brooke, I've so loved talking to you. I think we're out of time, but I have so loved talking to you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. And, and really, I've learned so much from talking to you, so I appreciate your time. You're very, very welcome. That's our guest, Dr. Brooke Greenlee-Garth, Chief Scientific Officer at the New York Academy of Sciences, and talking today about science communications. I'm Sherry Goldman, and that's Let's Talk PR and More for today. You can find more information about the show and about me at Goldman Communications Group's website, www.goldmanpr.net. Thank you again for listening today. Look forward to talking PR and more with you all again next week.